There is a special unit in the FBI that's called the Behavioral Analysis Unit, or the BAU. And the mission, I looked it up, the mission of the BAU, according to the FBI website, is to provide behavior-based investigative and or operational support by applying case experience, research, and training to complex, time-sensitive crimes, usually involving violence. The BAU was created in 1985 as part of the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crimes, and it was brought into the mainstream culture by television shows like the show Criminal Minds on CBS. And Criminal Minds depicts an elite group of FBI agents called profilers who travel the country assisting local law enforcement agencies with difficult uh, crimes. And that's based on the BAU, which actually exists. It was also kind of highlighted in some big screen uh, Hollywood movies like the whole Hannibal Lecter uh, series, uh, which of course was based on the the Thomas Harris novels. But, you know, the study of criminal behavior has really become quite scientific in the last few decades. And, and really long before that, the, uh, the Luciferian elite that really pulled the strings behind the scenes, uh, you know, their, their secret studies and experiments have been able to predict and in many cases manipulate human behavior. But there really is a mindset uh, undergirding the wicked. And in fact, the Bible talks about this pretty extensively. If you go back to Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul is describing here uh, this battle for the mind. And he's talking about unbelievers and in fact, uh, the, the most wicked of the wicked. And he says, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. It all started in the Garden of Eden when the serpent deceived Adam and Eve by filling their minds with misinformation, disinformation, and of course, outright lies. And so Paul says, having given them over to a debased mind, what's the result of that? What, what's in your mind leads to behaviors. You behave based on how you think. And so then he describes this long litany over the next three or four verses of things that stem from a debased mind or a wicked mind. He says they're filled, they do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. It really is a battle for the mind. And if you go to uh, Ephesians, Paul tells the believers there that, you know, you used to walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Uh, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, and notice this, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Yet sin always starts in the mind. And he goes on to say, we were by nature children of wrath. 
You see, there's a clear-cut dichotomy in God's Word between children of wrath and children of God. You're one or the other. Every human being on planet Earth is either a child of wrath or a child of God. You're born dead in your trespasses and sins, as he says in the verse right before this passage, Ephesians 2.1. And by nature, you're children of wrath. But if by faith alone in Christ alone you've received the free gift of eternal life and been born again, reborn, now you become a child of God. John 1.12 says, To as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. Later in 1 John, in his letter, some 60 years later, that the same Apostle John that wrote the Gospel of John wrote the letters to John and the book of Revelation, and he says in 1 John 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And if you've trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation, in that instant, Jesus said, You've passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. You are no longer sons of wrath. The wrath of God no longer abides in you. But for unbelievers, they are children of wrath. And if they cater to that old nature, that sinful nature, they are capable of some pretty severe wickedness. But it's a battle for the mind. Paul says in Colossians, beware lest anyone cheat you. That word cheat in Greek is the word sunilgeo. It's the only use of that word in the New Testament. It's used in, outside of the Bible in ancient Greek literature quite often. Uh, and it's used outside of the Bible to refer to, in a hunting context, to uh, uh, setting up a trap and you know capturing your prey. But the lexical meaning of suno legeo is to take captive or to take control completely of. And so Paul tells us, beware lest anyone take us captive or control us. And how might they do that? Well, through philosophy, empty deceit, tradition of men, and the basic principles of the world. In other words, what do all these things have in common? They are all mental or intellectual weapons. It really is a battle for the mind. And that's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that we need to take every thought captive. He said the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, fleshly, worldly, but mighty in God for the pulling down strongholds. In other words, it's the Word of God that gives us everything we need for life and godliness, the sufficiency of the Scripture. reason so many Christians struggle with overcoming difficulties in their life is because they're searching for answers in all the wrong places. They're going to um, secular humanistic counselors, being filled with the world's philosophies, and it's like the blind leading the blind. Because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not of this world. Uh, they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Notice, bringing every what? Thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. It's all about the mind and thoughts. David tells us in Psalm 7, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. Why? For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. See, God looks at the heart. By the way, heart and mind there uh, refer to the same thing. A lot of times people mistakenly have the, uh, the wrong understanding that the heart and mind are different. Like you'll hear people, especially Calvinists, say you've you got to believe in Jesus not with your heart, not with your head, but with your heart. Because if you believe it with your head, you're not saved. If you believe it with your heart, you're saved. No, that's not true at all. 
I've demonstrated extensively uh, that in Scripture, heart and mind are used interchangeably, often even in the same verse. Uh, there's no distinction. Yeah, if you believe something, you believe it. It doesn't matter where you believe it. It's whether you believe it. It's what you believe that saves, not how or where you believe it. And uh, if you're interested, I'd be happy to email you that article that I wrote years ago demonstrating that with about 15 or 20 verses that clearly use the terms interchangeably. So this is just a repetition for emphasis. God is the one who looks at the heart. God looked at the heart when he chose David. He didn't look at the outward appearance, the strength, the weaponry, the height, the, the measurements of these strong sons of Jesse. He looked at the heart. And the same thing is true for the wicked. You know, we tend to focus on the outward aspect, uh, and it's not, you know, hard to do when you're facing so much evil in the world. But we need to remember that wickedness begins in the heart. And Paul challenges believers to avoid being conformed to the world. How do we do that? He says, by renewing your mind. By renewing your mind. And that's why the Bible tells us Satan, when targeting unbelievers, remember Satan's two goals are to keep the lost lost and the saved defeated. That's Satan's whole reason for existence. I mean, obviously we know the big picture. He wants to take over the world, usurp God's control, and, and have this world for himself. He wants to defeat God. He tried a, a coup in heaven, and that coup didn't work out very well for him. He got cast to the earth, and now he's trying to take over the earth. But philosophically, what Satan really wants to do is keep the lost lost, and he wants to keep the saved, if you know the Lord, that's you and I, defeated, discouraged, depressed. Uh, and how does he keep the lost lost? By focusing on the mind. Paul tells us in Corinthians 4.4, 4, he's blinding the minds uh, of the unbelievers to the gospel. It's all about uh, the mind. And so thus far in our review of Paul's experiences since returning to Jerusalem for the first time in five years, remember when he finally came back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey, and it had been five years since he was there before, we've been focusing so far on Paul's perspective and the lessons that we can learn from how Paul handled adversity. But this morning, I want to shift our attention to the wicked, unbelieving Jewish and Roman leaders that were trying to literally kill Paul. In other words, if we were to bring in the BAU, the Behavioral Analysis Unit from the FBI, to analyze Paul's enemies, who are also enemies of Christ and enemies of the cross, what would they tell us? Let's get a glimpse inside the mind of the wicked. And the first thing I think this passage illustrates is that the wicked are relentless. They are absolutely relentless. They never give up. They never wave the white flag of surrender. Uh, the evil, the purely, the, the, the truly wicked, the utterly wicked have to be defeated. They're never going to give up. You know, Satan's already been defeated, right? He was defeated at Calvary when Christ rose from the dead the third day. Uh, and yet he's still striving hard, thinking he can somehow win this war. He's sorely mistaken. And I like to remind him of that often. He's a loser. He's a great big loser. <laughs> he's already lost the battle. And, uh, and he's going to keep fighting, though, until... Jesus cast him into the eternal lake of fire that Jesus tells us was prepared for the devil and his angels, where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. But they're relentless. They never give up. So let's pick up the story in Acts chapter 25. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning uh, as uh, Festus comes on the scene. And when Festus, the governor, had come to the province after three days, he went up from Caesarea uh, to Jerusalem, even though Caesarea was north of Jerusalem, northwest, right on the coast, they always speak of going up to Jerusalem because it was 
up in elevation. Jerusalem sat on the mountain. And so uh, he goes up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, and then the high priests and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him. So the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, as we've seen, realized that they really didn't have much hope of doing away with Paul through the Roman courts. They tried and tried, and they're going to try again uh, here with Agrippa and Festus, but their case was too weak. And again and again, the Roman magistrates said, you don't really have a case. So what they're going to do is yet again, like they did with the commander Lysias, they're going to try to come up with a conspiracy to kill Paul, as we shall see in a moment. So they urged this new governor, Festus, to have Paul brought to Jerusalem so they could lie in wait and kill him. By the way, the uh, high priest at this point was uh, not Ananias. He had stepped aside, and it was Ishmael who had succeeded him during the final days of Felix's governorship that we talked about last week. So this anonymous psalmist reminds us that the wicked are self-deceived. Why do the wicked renounce God? Well, he has said in his heart, you will not require an account. And so they're relentless. They don't get that it's a, you know, a failed effort. It's, it's a fait accompli. It's a, a thing already accomplished. God's won. Give up. Why don't you? They don't do it. They keep on fighting. They are relentless. The second thing we can learn from these wicked Jewish leaders is that they relish death. They absolutely relish death. Again and again, they're trying to kill Paul. Again, go back to verse 3 in our text. They asked a favor of Festus that he would summon him, Paul, to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, this is, this is later on when we get to his, uh, Paul's appearance before Agrippa, Festus lays the case out and sets the stage. But notice that he's, he describes these Jewish leaders as saying they're crying out that he's not fit to live any longer. So you see this bloodlust, this love of death. The Jewish law prohibited and contrasted a love of life with a love of death. And he, the, the law commanded the Jews to keep themselves far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous. Solomon in Proverbs puts it this way, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And if they say, Come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Don't go. Well, this is exactly what these wicked Jewish leaders were doing, showing their utter blindedness and their love of death. They again and again were conspiring. The first time it was with 40 different uh, leaders. By the way, don't let anyone tell you conspiracies don't exist. They're all over the Bible and they're all over the history. Uh, conspiracy is just two or more people working together to do something bad. And the greatest conspiracy of all time is the Luciferian conspiracy where Satan, demons, and human agents are working together to overthrow God and take over the world. Psalm chapter 2 describes it perfectly. So here we see again this love of death. Proverbs says, all those who hate God love death. David said in Psalm 37, the wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. That's the mindset of the wicked. They love death. David goes on in the same psalm, the New American Standard puts it this way, the wicked spies upon the righteous and what? Seeks to kill him. So we go back to our text, picking it up in verse 4. Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. And therefore he said, let those who have authority among you Go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. 
So Festus didn't agree to their conspiracy, their request, uh, but he said, look, I'll, I'll come to Caesarea, and you can accuse him there, you know, the same way they've done again and again, this time just with a different Roman leader. And when they had remained among them, when he, Festus, had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, the judgment seat is the Greek word bema. It was a, a raised platform in the town square in the uh, first century Greco-Roman world that Greek magistrates and Roman magistrates would sit on it and uh, people would bring their disputes to them and then they, they would issue rulings and so forth. So he's sitting on this judgment seat in the Agora, the town square, and he commanded Paul to be brought. And when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem, the same ones that were trying to get Festus involved in this conspiracy a few days earlier, they laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. I mean, these were the same charges that the Jews made through their attorney, that orator, Tertullus, that we looked at last week, that they had hired to try to spin things and uh, convince uh, the judge. Uh, while he answered for himself, this is Paul, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. See, the Jews could not prove the charges, and they produced no witnesses, so all Paul had to do was simply deny them categorically. There was no witnesses to anything they were saying. So this trial proceeded very similar to the one uh, previously with Felix. So then Luke tells us, but Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? I mean, the naivete of this is pretty stunning, actually. Like, I mean, did he really think Paul was going to say, sure, let's, let's do a change of venue and have this trial take place in Jerusalem, where twice now they've tried to kill me. Actually, more than that, but twice there's been conspiracies to kill me. Uh, but this new governor, Festus, didn't want to do anything that would turn the Jewish authorities against him. And so this would have been an easy out. You know, he could sort of wash his hands of it if only Paul would say, sure, I'll go down to, to Jerusalem and we'll have this trial before the Sanhedrin yet again. Um, so he asked Paul if he wants to be moved. And, uh, of course, Paul says, uh, nope, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. Remember, he's a Roman citizen. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I'm an offender or I've committed anything deserving of death, I don't object to dying. But if there's nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, then no one can deliver me to them, including you, Festus. So I appeal to Caesar. Paul knew that if he went to Jerusalem, where he was persona non grata, it would be curtains. He would not stand a chance. Uh, plus, he had been aware of previous plots to assassinate him. Remember when his young nephew overheard the plot and then reported it to Paul in prison uh, at the, at the uh, uh, commanding guard there in the temple? Uh, so he wasn't about to go to Jerusalem. And it was his right as a Roman citizen to appeal uh, to Rome. And uh, not every Roman citizen had the right. If you were accused of murder or a few other high crimes, then you lost that right. But in Paul's case, since he really had done nothing wrong, he certainly was well within his rights to appeal uh, to Caesar. So the Roman emperor, the Caesar that they're talking about here at this time, was Nero. Now, we know how horrible Nero was, but at this time, he hadn't gotten bad yet. So Nero took office at 16 years old. In the first several years, he was fairly admirable. And he, did, he didn't go crazy. He went literally mentally ill 
in 62 AD. Remember, this is 57 AD. So that's still five years away. So Paul was not afraid to uh, appeal to Nero uh, because he was at this time still fairly admirable. So then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, again, Festus is simply playing the political game here. He's wanting to stay in good graces with the Pharisees and scribes and the, the high priest, the Sanhedrin. Yet he's also walking that delicate line with a Roman citizen who he knows people hate, the Jews hate. So he confers with the council, and then he says, well, you've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. And that's a very powerful turning point in the expansion of the gospel and in Luke's narrative here in the early church in Acts. Because remember, Paul had wanted to go to Rome throughout his ministry. When he wrote the book of Romans, which he wrote just a few months before everything we're studying right now this morning, uh, he says in Romans how he desires to go to Rome where he can preach the gospel to those who've never heard it. And this is the way God was going to make that happen. And so in the midst of all of this, and we've talked about this a lot over the last few weeks, uh, God is at work. Never forget that. It was, it was unfair. It was an injustice. Paul was being persecuted. He was nearly killed again and again. But God is at work, and God can bring good things out of bad things. And what they meant for evil, as uh, Joseph would say in Genesis 50, God meant for good. And he's going to bring him ultimately uh, to Rome where he would uh, live out his days. So uh, now Festus, of course, could have released Paul, which would have been the ideal thing, but because he knew he was innocent, but he was still trying to walk this line between what the Jews wanted and what the Roman law demanded. So the third characteristic in the mindset of the wicked is an interesting one because some new people come on the scene here. Uh, and that is that they run in the same circles. The bloodlines of the wicked are particularly deep. Evil attracts evil. There is a mentality, a group mentality that guides evil people. And it's easier to deceive those who are already self-deceived. And so we read in verse 13, After some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. So there's this new governor, Festus. They're coming to pay their respects. And when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king. King Agrippa was the Jewish king. And he says, There's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, my predecessor, about whom the chief priests and elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. Well, let's take a look at who this King Agrippa and Bernice are. So here is a family tree of the Herodian dynasty, the great uh, Herod, starting with Herod the Great. But if you look down here at the bottom, this is the Herod that we're talking about this morning. This is the one before whom Paul would uh, uh, testify. Uh, we're not going to get to that till next week in chapter 26, but it's the one that Festus is talking to. Herod Agrippa II uh, was the grand was the son of Herod Agrippa I and the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Now, who's Herod the Great? Well, Herod the Great is the one who tried to kill baby Jesus when he was born. Remember, Herod died shortly after Jesus was born, and when Jesus was born, he issued that edict that every male child two years old and younger be killed. Right? So that's, that's his lineage. Well, one of his sons was Herod Antipas, and Herod Antipas, which would be Agrippa, the one that we're talking about this morning, would be his great uncle, as you can see from the family tree. Who's Antipas? Antipas is the one who had beheaded John the Baptist. 
I mean, these are wicked people. Um, Agrippa II's father, Agrippa I, is the one who had executed James, the son of Zebedee, and the brother of John. In Acts chapter 12, we read about that. By the way, it didn't go too well for Agrippa I after he did that. He died a rather ignominious death. <laughs> I love this passage. I mean, in a sort of morbid sort of way. Uh, but we read in Acts chapter 12 that after Agrippa I did that, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. That's what the Bible tells us happened to Agrippa. These are wicked people, and they're all interconnected. So Herod Agrippa's son, Agrippa II, is the man whom Paul is now facing. And Agrippa II was the superintendent of the Jerusalem temple. He's the one that appointed uh, uh, Israel's high priest, and he reigned from 50 to 70 AD, about 21 Years. Agrippa II was 30 years old at this time, and his sister Bernice, who you see there on the family line, was uh, about a year younger. So she was 29 years old. Now, notice uh, Drusilla. If you see this, uh, Drusilla, one of his other sisters, their younger sister, even younger than Bernice, guess who she was married to? Felix, the former governor, the one who Festus replaced. I mean, it just, you can't make this stuff up. This is just an incredible interconnected web of these wicked people running in the same circles, intermarrying. And by the way, Bernice, who's the one who shows up with Agrippa, if you didn't know any better and you didn't do your research or look, you know, look up on a manners and customs book to say, oh, who's Agrippa and who's Bernice? Remember, you know, the text just said King Agrippa and Bernice come to Caesarea. Well, you might think she's his wife. Well, yeah, so did a lot of other people. In fact, Josephus, the first century historian, reminds us that, or tells us, that Bernice and Agrippa had an incestuous relationship, even though they were brother and sister. This is what the elite do. This is what the wicked do. So uh, these people were all interconnected. They're related. They're part of an evil cabal. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Absolutely it does. If you look at some of the oldest bloodlines in the world, you find, for example, the royal family of Denmark in the bottom right of your screen there. All of the royal families of Britain, Luxembourg, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Spain, Monaco, all of them trace their roots all the way back to the same family bloodlines, King George II in the early 18th century. Of course, you've got the British royal family. There's King Charles III in the top left. You've also got the, another one of the oldest bloodlines in the world is the Kong family bloodline represented there in the bottom left that's confucius the ancient philosopher confucius who lived about 500 years before christ um, and then you've got the japanese imperial family in the top center there that's uh, the current japanese emperor nirohito uh, who took office assumed the throne in uh, 2019 and then you've got the luri family uh, there in the top right which according to some sources is one of the oldest family bloodlines still continuously in existence. Dates all the way back to a thousand years before Christ. The Lurie family, L-U-R-E, and includes such notable elites in their bloodline as uh, uh, Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, even the great composer uh, Felix uh, uh, Mendelssohn. And by the way, I tried to figure this out. Uh, if uh, Jeff Lurie, the owner of the Philadelphia Eagles, is part of that dynasty, and I couldn't find out for sure, but 
knowing that this is a wicked dynasty and that he owned the eagles, I'm pretty sure he, he must, have, must have been. But anyway, if we go back to the text, the fact of the matter is these people run together. The bloodlines run deep. So after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice come to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus lays Paul's case before the king. So remember, Agrippa is a Jewish king, and I say Jewish because he certainly was not a good Jew. Uh, and Festus wanted to discuss Paul's case with him. Maybe he could help him understand what in the world is going on here. Why, is this, why are the Jews so upset with this man, uh, Paul? Agrippa had a reputation for being an expert in Jewish matters. Uh, Agrippa was also the person whom Rome had given the authority to appoint the high priest, as I said earlier. Um, so he, uh, Festus gives him an overview of Paul's situation and essentially says these are matters concerning the Jewish religion and particularly the resurrection of the dead. Paul says, to, uh, or Festus says, to them I answered, it is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face. Again, you see Festus walking this line between the Roman law and the irate, wicked mob of Jewish unbelievers. Uh, until he's had an opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the men be brought in. And when the accusers stood up, notice they brought no accusation against him of such things as I expected or supposed. To paraphrase that, Festus is saying to Agrippa, Sir, I was surprised that there wasn't more to this. <laughs> this there's just not much to it. And he, then what he says next is interesting. He says they had some questions against him about their own religion and about some guy named Jesus who had died. Remember, this is 25, 24 years later, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. We'll come back to that. Very significant. Paul continually testifies to the resurrection of our Lord. He had, he had seen Jesus. He met him on the road to Damascus. If you know the Lord, you've met him too. And we know he's alive. Uh, we're going to be celebrating that here in a couple of weeks. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. Right? We know that because he saved us. Right? And because I was uncertain of such questions, you know, Festus is not a, you know, a Jew. I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and be judged concerning these matters. Like that would ever happen. But Paul, when, when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. So these wicked run together. Evil begets evil. But if we go back to verse 9, this last little bit that we just read, we find a fourth mindset of the wicked, and that is they revile Jesus. They revile Jesus. They hate Jesus because he's the giver of life. And they love death, as we said. Jesus is Satan's arch enemy. And they love Satan, so they revile Jesus. Again, verse 19. Uh, you know, the, they're upset about the fact that Paul thinks Jesus is alive. Now remember, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, was made up of scribes, Pharisees, and, and Sadducees. The Pharisees, as we've talked about, believed in the concept of the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. Paul had been a Pharisee. So the Pharisees were upset because Paul was even suggesting such a notion. But the whole lot of them were upset specifically because Paul was proclaiming that Jesus Christ, whom they crucified, was alive. 
And we see this going all the way back to Acts chapter 3, every sermon that was preached, Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, as the early Christian leaders point the finger and remind the Jews, this you missed it. You crowned him with thorns instead of a king's crown. And uh, you stumbled. And uh, you shouldn't have done that. And so that's why these were, they were so upset. Every time Paul referenced the resurrection of Jesus, it incensed his accusers. They hated the thought that somehow the Jesus they crucified was still alive. And so Agrippa then responds to Festus, who's just given him this overview. I also would like to hear the man myself. And Festus said, tomorrow you shall hear him. So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp, great uh, pageantry, you know, um, the, the Festus used this occasion to honor Agrippa and Bernice the, in front of the leading citizens of Caesarea. Notice uh, when he had entered the auditorium with the commanders. Now there were five commanders based in Caesarea. Each had a thousand soldiers under them. And they all, all had the same authority that uh, Claudius Lysias, the commander in Jerusalem that we've talked so much about, had. He was one in that same level. But besides the commanders, notice prominent men of the city. In other words, everyone who was anyone was going to be there. I mean, this was a big deal. You can imagine the entourage of the Sanhedrin coming in. Word of the different plots and conspiracies had no doubt spread. You know, Agrippa the king was in town. That's a big deal. So everybody was gathering. And by the way, Paul's defense, which we'll get to next week in chapter 26, before Agrippa is the longest of his five defenses that Luke records in the book of Acts. And it centers more on the gospel and the evangelistic appeal and the resurrection than any of his others, although they all uh, talk about it, as we have mentioned. So Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. We looked at that earlier when we talked about how they love death. Festus goes on, but when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. In other words, I still can't figure this out. Therefore, I brought him out before you. That first you in Greek is plural to you, you all, you commanders, you prominent citizens, but especially before you, King Agrippa, singular in the Greek, so that after the examination has taken place, I might have something to write. What do I tell Nero, you know? Um, for it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not specify the charges against him. Unreasonable, you think? And so the final, I think, mindset of the wicked, which is what Festus and Felix before him and even uh, the commander Claudius Lysias couldn't really figure out, is, is because they're all, they're all irrational. The truly wicked... Their reasoning is completely irrational. We see it again and again. They bring up these charges, which they could not prove. It was all about emotion. There were no facts, no empirical evidence, no video footage, no DNA testing. I mean, this was just raw emotion. That's why they hired that Tertullus the first time to try to, that lawyer to try to sway uh, the governor. They couldn't prove it. Uh, it says they brought no accusation against him of such things as I suppose. In other words, you know, it's as if Festus is saying, I never dreamed that this is all they had against him. I, I mean, this is amazing. Surely there must be more. That's what Festus is saying here. 
See, they are irrational. And this goes back to where we began. The futility of their minds. The wicked are so blinded they cannot think straight. If we go back to that passage in Romans 1, Paul goes on to say, although they knew God, they didn't glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became what? Futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were dark. There you see again the juxtaposition of thoughts and hearts. It's the same thing. They do not have the ability to think analytically or critically because of their bloodlust and their just seething hatred that is blinding them. Going back to Ephesians, which we looked at earlier, Paul says, Therefore, uh, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. The futility of their mind. So there we have it. A glimpse inside the mindset of the wicked. How would the BAU, the Behavioral Analysis Unit of the FBI, describe the mindset of Paul's enemies and, and by extension of all evil people? Well, they're relentless. They relish death. They run in the same circles. The bloodlines run deep. They revile Jesus. And their reasoning is completely irrational. Now, before we move on to the Lord's Supper, let me just leave you, before we get to the takeaway, with the best news, and that is the outcome of the wicked. Um, I love this passage. Going back to Psalm 37, King David says, For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Amen. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. There you see that irrationality again, the emotion. But what do we read? The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. David said the same thing in Psalm 2, the, the quintessential passage about the Luciferian conspiracy, when he says the Lord laughs at these world leaders who think they can throw off the cords of God's control. The Lord laughs at him. A better day is coming from God's perspective. And this is helpful for us to keep in mind, especially in such a time as this. I mean, there's a lot going on in our world. Uh, I mean, this week actually could be a pretty pivotal week. Who knows? I don't have the mind of the Lord, and the Lord's the ultimate arbiter of what's going to happen. Just because, you know, the evil, wicked Luciferians have a plan in place does not mean it's going to happen. I say that all the time. Every now and then people email me and say, oh, you know, you're so doom and gloom, you never give any good news. And I'm like, you're listening to the wrong guy. Every time I speak, I talk about the good news like we're doing right here. There's a certain excitement about seeing God's plan of the ages unfold before our very eyes because we know how it all ends. We know not only about the great satanic reset and Klaus Schwab, but we know about the greatest reset that is to come when Christ comes back and takes the throne. And so absolutely, this is something that should encourage us. But, you know, who knows? If, if the elite get their way, this could be a pivotal week. They've been trying to gin up unrest and foment you know, civil unrest and fighting and, and ultimately a, a civil war. Who knows? If things happen the way the news reports are saying they're going to happen this week, we could see some pretty tough times. But you know what? We not, don't need to worry. You know, I can remember one time when our kids were little. By the way, most of, a lot of my kids are uh, here today home from school and Wendy's brother's here visiting, so we want to make them feel welcome to be sure and say hello. Faith's going to close our service here in a minute with a song. But I remember when the kids were little and we would take them to those little county fairs or amusement parks and, you know, they'd be riding a ride and 
I, I don't do rides very well because my stomach gets upset, so usually I'm the one with the camera as the ride's going around, standing off to the side taking pictures while mom's on there or one of their older siblings. But, you know, you've experienced this, I'm sure, yourself. The kids get on, the ride starts going, they get terrified. They just get terrified, and they're worried and holding on. They're starting to cry, but then they catch my eye as they're coming around, and they see Dad. And all of a sudden, their, their countenance changes. And, and I'm laughing, and I'm smiling, and I'm happy, and, yay, this is going to be great. Don't, don't you love it? And they, their whole complexion changes because they realize if Dad's okay, I'm okay. It's going to be okay. And then they enjoy the rest of the ride. Well, listen, we're on a terrifying ride right now. And we need to picture in our minds the Lord, the creator of the universe, the sovereign almighty who's up there laughing. He's not terrified. He's not scared. He's laughing at what these ignorant Luciferian elites are trying to do to take over this world. Now, yeah, are they going to succeed for a while? If you believe the Bible, they will for at least seven years prior to the return of the Lord. Uh, but, uh, you know, that doesn't mean we need to be scared <coughs> of all that so remember the outcome of the wicked and here's the takeaway beware of the wicked learn to recognize them avoid them expose them remember what Ephesians says going back there one last time have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness but rather expose them let's pray together father we thank you for this uh fascinating account as we continue our journey through acts of uh, the desperate attempts of the wicked to try to destroy Paul and his testimony but it wasn't time and so Lord we thank you for the lessons that we can learn from that Lord we pray that uh, if there's one here within the sound of my voice that doesn't know you that today in simple childlike faith they would trust in Jesus Christ your son and our savior who took their place on the cross paid the penalty for their sins for all of our sins, the sins of all mankind, rose from the dead three days later and now offers freely to all the gift of eternal life. And I pray that uh, anyone who hasn't trusted in Jesus and him alone for that free gift, that today would be the day of salvation. For those of us that already know you, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts, encourage us, lift us up, help us to catch your eye and recognize that it's going to be okay, that you are in full control. We pray all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.